0: I thought it was a lot of fun because I love marathon swimming anyway, but it, it is just, this is kind of a metaphor for my life that, you know, it, it's not something I control. It's something I go with and have a skill set to navigate. Uh, but at the end of the day, it's, it's not up to me. Um, what happens. And uh, you know, that really became apparent to me with, with childlessness, you know, I mean, uh, I just thought when I first met my wife, I thought, okay, well, boy meets girl, you know, Have a lot of fun together, fall in love, get married, and uh, kids will come when they come. And, uh, well, it turns out that's not what happened. And then with the adoption process that we we tried over the five years or so, uh, I thought, well, my analogy that I use in the book and what I was thinking at the time was, well, it's like a triathlon. You know, I mean, it's hard work. Put um, one foot in front of the other, and enough time passes. If you don't give up, well, it eventually happened. And well, it turns out that's not what happened.
1: Hello, and welcome to the Full Stop Podcast, a childish community podcast with Michael Hughes, Berenice Smith, and me, Sarah Lawrence. If you're new to this podcast, we're here to delve beneath the surface of the childless identity, to cover what's going on in the wider community and to look at the topics that affect us. Our goal is to help and support those of you out in the community by sharing the stories and the voices that make up our narrative, so that you too can begin to find yours. We also aim to inform and educate those who aren't members of our community so that they can begin to understand and support those people in their lives who are facing a life without children. In this episode, we're joined by Rob Hutchins, a former competitive triathlete turned adventure marathon wild swimmer and author. Rob has the drive and adventure of a dozen people. While he's travelled the world and is a yoga teacher with a passion for adventures, his biggest challenge to date is the first known swim at the length of the Clutha River in New Zealand. We spoke to Rob about his passion for adventure, his challenges with childlessness and being the nosy people we are, we also asked him about what adventures he has planned next as you'll hear from the podcast many many adventures are coming up for Rob uh and there really is no stopping the bloke we hope you enjoy it
2: who are you what do you do yeah. and then of course we'll get into the into the nitty-gritty so okay Canadian yeah. Australian live in New Zealand so there's, there's a nice rich story there
0: so uh yeah basically um Well, I I grew up in Newfoundland, Canada. Um, Newfoundland is often the part where nobody's heard of. Um, It's the far east of Canada. And um, yeah, I grew up starting to do triathlons there and did my chiropractic education. I'm I'm a chiropractor in in Christchurch, New Zealand now. Um, I did my chiropractic education in Bournemouth, England. Uh, That's where the British Chiropractic School is. And uh, after that, I moved to Australia and a few years after that met my wife and lived there for 15 or so years and a brief year in Singapore and then we both uh, jumped the ditch that's you know what we call the Tasman down here uh, to New Zealand where we've been for the last just over four years so now my wife and I both have funny accents over here so <laughs> yeah wow. so uh, yeah it's been a bit bit of a nomadic life for me uh, my wife's been somewhat nomadic since she's met me, but we're very happy here in New Zealand and I'm gonna travel a lot more now that you know travels a thing again uh, with COVID. but um, I hopefully I'm gonna not move country again. I, I think I've done that enough
3: <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah. you have been all over the place. so new New Finland, New Finland, you called it. Is that like the dog? Is that where the dogs come from? That's how I yeah
0: uh, yeah, yep. Yeah, we, uh, we call it uh, Newfies, you know, we're, we just refer to ourselves as Newfies. Uh, we, say, we pronounce it Newfoundland, uh, kind of if you say it slowly enough, it sounds like Newfoundland. It is Newfoundland. Mm. Uh, some people mispronounce it as thinking New Finland as in Scandinavia, and uh, the Americans tend to pro- uh, mispronounce it saying Newfoundland. Uh, we just tend to kind of skip over the found and say Newfoundland. Put the emphasis on land yeah and but it is yeah where it is where the newfoundland dogs are and Mm. the full province is called newfoundland and labrador labrador is part of the mainland and well they have the labrador retriever so a fun fact about newfoundland is we're the only place in the world that gets two dogs wow (laughs) yeah
2: yeah the best breeds as well wow there's a bloke
1: up the road that's got one he looks like a bear he's gorgeous I was just like, I have to have a cuddle yeah. every time I walk past him. I, you know, say, all right, yeah. to the bloat. And then I'm like, oh, <laughs> My yep. cousin, and... dog. <laughs> yeah. I don't even know the chap's name. I know the dog's name, but not the chap. Never mind.
3: Um... That, that's generally the way it is, Sarah. No one knows it? the name. <laughs> Everyone knows the <laughs> dog's name. That's just how life is when you have a dog. It's yeah. how it goes. So which part of New Zealand are you in at the moment, Rob?
0: Uh, South Island. I live in Christchurch. And, oh, uh, yeah, I've been... Yeah, I've been there for four years and um, Christchurch seems to suit me really well uh, because I really like the mountains, rivers and lakes and, you know, been making full use of that since I've been here. And, um, you know, um, my wife loves it too. And, you know, her being Australian, she really likes it that she can see bodies of water like the beautiful lakes that aren't the ocean because being Australian, that kind of, you know, seeing rivers that actually have a lot of water in it is pretty foreign to her. Uh, but it's pretty similar to where I grew up with, except we don't have bears here. You know, when you go out in New Zealand, there's nothing... When you go out in, the, out in the back country in New Zealand, there's nothing out there that thinks you look like lunch. So that's pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs>
3: that a really so yeah. you talk a lot in, in the introduction to your book and also all of, the, um, all of the material I've read around it, you talk and you've said it yourself actually about being a nomad. So how has the last mm-hmm. few years affected you? How, how have you been feeling about that?
0: Well, I mean, like, uh, I, I think I'm pretty much, you know, I, I'm old enough now to know that I don't know what's going to happen. And obviously COVID really shook you. We really don't know what's going to happen. Um, you know, I, I, in addition to moving a lot, uh, I've done a lot of traveling and uh, I touched on only a small portion of the travels that I've done in my book, but, um, um, I don't know that I would have spent a whole lot of time going overseas in the last few years anyway, because, uh, the way I've been looking at it is people come from all over the world to see this beautiful country down here. And uh, just kind of, before I spend any holiday time and holiday money, uh, going elsewhere, I really feel like I want to see a lot more of New Zealand. So even if COVID had never been a thing, I'd, well, I well, don't know with certainty, but I mean, I'm pretty confident at least most of that time I would have just been wanting to see New Zealand anyway. And for the most part, not entirely, uh, but most of COVID, we had pretty uh, good travel freedom um, on South Island anyway. So, um, yeah, I I don't know that I would have traveled much overseas. Um, Definitely have a lot of other overseas destinations that I want to get to. But, um, yeah, I'm going to see more of New Zealand first.
3: Yeah very wise actually that that's kind of something I sort of got to learn to live with when we got the the dog we rescued got a rescue dog and we Mm -hmm. found we couldn't do the things that we wanted to do before um Mm we didn't want to put her in kennels don't want to do that the cost but also just I've got a dog and I want to take her on holiday so actually we've seen so much more of the UK and you forget where I live in Cambridge people pay quite a lot of money to come here and you think oh, yes, maybe I ought to just be a tourist in my own place and actually sort of sit with where I live and explore it. And goodness me, you've got so much wonderful things on your doorstep there. That's incredible.
0: Yeah, I mean, pretty much everywhere I've lived, uh, a lot of people tend to tell me, I think this is, you know, not unique to New Zealand. And, you know, I mean, but you know people tend to tell me like wow you've seen more of the country than I have and I've been here my whole life and you know and I found that in Newfoundland and I found that in elsewhere in Canada where I've lived and then I did my best to see as much of Britain and uh, the surrounding area that I could and people who lived in well everywhere I've lived always keep you know it's a recurring thing that they you know I seem to see a lot more of the places than a lot of the locals do and that's just because i i think i'm just very explorative by nature i've always been that way and you know reasonably active you know and i like seeing the world at the pace of a bike and you know in, in the ocean and swimming and running and hiking lots of places so you get to see a lot of countryside given what i do
3: Yeah, and from a very different angle probably to most people i mean not many people are going to put themselves in a in a river um, that's yeah. Yeah, I mean,
0: yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm the only one who swam the Clutha, and we'll talk, I guess, in depth about that shortly. But like, just re- just recently at Easter Sunday, I swam the full length of Milford Sound, which is one of New Zealand's natural icons. You know, it's the uh, the iconic fjord. I mean, there's a whole fjordland down in the southwest corner, but um, Milford Sound is the icon. And just on Easter Sunday past, I swam uh, the entire length of the fjord. so I saw you know, most people see the fjord from a boat and well, I saw it from swinging my arms in the water and some of the boats that went past people were kind of blown away or kind of like, Whoa, where this guy idiot actually swimming out there. <laughs> you know, I mean, I, I had support boats and kayaks, uh, was a support boat and kayaks with me, but um, yeah, I mean, it was a, uh, you know, six hour swim to get from out from the where the fjord meets the open ocean back into land. And it was just, you know, in terms of, beauty from a swim I think it was probably the most beautiful swim I've ever done which is which is pretty yeah it was incredible
1: wow I'm, I'm curious yeah. because we were gonna got the book got the notes
0: yep, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> but, yep. But
1: obviously you talk a lot about racing in the book uh, downward nomad uh, Down River nomad but you mm-hmm. you do you get something different out of every single sort of swim or triathlon that you do because like, it sounds like it keeps you know you're doing it and it keeps you going but is it because it gives you something different or is it something else
0: um well uh, there, there's a there's a lot of things i get out of it i mean uh well as you know i, I started as a pretty hopeless athlete um i it, there was no natural talent involved here put it that way um so when i joined swimming and became you know and i don't want to make it sound like you know i was the best swimmer in the world i mean a joke you know when people ask me about it you know Michael Phelps has never ever called me for training advice you know so put it that way <laughs> um, <laughs> and he probably won't ever um, but um, you know it, it became a thing of well can I do this and swimming became important to me because I always tried team sports to begin with which was a miserable failure because I can't do anything involving a ball and um swimming was one of those things where you know even if you weren't very good you became a benchwarmer you didn't have to be a benchwarmer like I wasn't basketball and um you know and then the the people that I met there you know two of the guys in particular who I talk about in the book um you know they were triathletes and I had known what a triathlon was but never thought of myself as such and I just You know, one day I just got it in my head that I wanted to see if I could. And um, so when I started doing triathlons, it was, you know, can I actually do this? And then over the years uh, as a teenager, I started to find my feet and started to do reasonably well in the triathlons. And then it became, well, how good can I do? And, you know, I never had the natural talent to become the world champion, but I went to the world championships. And then, um, it it going beyond that, you know, to the, uh, you know, to the really long distance triathlons like Ironman and that sort of thing. And then at a certain point, uh, realized that I just wanted to, uh, not only compete and do triathlons, it, it got to the point where I knew I could do a triathlon and I just wanted to start doing more adventurous things, uh, but keeping this sort of the triathlon theme and swimming was always sort of my strength. And then, um, I started doing all these expeditions that were either on foot on wheels or in the water, or sometimes a combination of two or three of those. And that's where I've arrived at now. And the, the Clutha river swim, the, the five day swim from a little town called Wanaka, uh, to the Pacific. Um, that was, you know, I always wanted to do a really, we used to call it trekking back where I grew up, but in New Zealand, they call it tramping. Uh, so we could call it swim trekking or swim tramping and, um, you know, just and, and river swimming just became something I really, really enjoyed. Um, and for the reasons I talked about in my book, um, you, know, you can't control a river. Um, and to me, that sort of became apparent in my life as well, you know, with the childlessness and some of the other things. And um, when, my, you know, when my father went off the rails when I was a teenager, I mean, he was always a bit of a drinker, but really got out of hand. Uh, when I was a teenager. And um, after he drunkenly attacked me for the first time, I had the best triathlon I ever did. And I, I viewed that as a way of taking control of my life. And I sort of thought, well, you know, triathlon is how I can stay in control and make sure I, you know, stay on the straight and narrow. And plus, I had the added benefit of really, really enjoying doing triathlons and, you know, really... Uh, but I but I, in, yeah, I didn't fully realize it at the time, but I, I thought it was a thing about taking control and, you know, making pretty strong decisions and in retrospect, probably too strong. Like um, I didn't want to become an alcoholic and coming from a line of them, I thought, okay, the best way to not be an alcoholic is to never, ever drink. And it took me into my thirties to realize that having a glass of wine once a week or so is not going to turn me into an alcoholic. And I found that I enjoyed having a glass of red wine um but it, you know I, I used to have in my early 30s a bit of guilt with with red wine because i thought you know that would lead me down that road but well it didn't you know i mean it was uh something i could you know i don't want to say control but yeah it, so um the subject of control became really important to me and with river swimming in particular i mean obviously in the mountains there's things like weather that you know you got to be a you know, aware of, and you can't, you know, you can't plan for it. I mean, you can't control it if it happens if you're out there. But river swimming, uh, you know, you can't control what the what the water's going to do. You just have to go with it and just have this kind of unique skill set. Um, some could argue that river swimming is kind of a useless skill set unless you happen to fall into a river accidentally. Uh, but to me, it, it felt like uh, it, I thought it was a lot of fun because I love marathon swimming anyway. But it's it just this is kind of a metaphor for my life that, you know, it, it's not something I control. It's something I go with and have a skill set to navigate. Uh, but at the end of the day, it's it's not up to me um, what happens. And, uh, you know, that really became apparent to me with, with childlessness. You know, I mean, uh, I just thought when I first met my wife, I thought, OK, well, boy meets girl, you know, have a lot of fun together, fall in love, get married and, uh, kids will come when they come. And, uh, well, it turns out that's not what happened. And then with the adoption process that we, we tried over the five years or so, um, I thought, well, my analogy that I use in the book and what I was thinking at the time was, well, it's like a triathlon, you know, I mean, it's hard work, um, put one foot in front of the other and enough time passes. If you don't give up, well, it eventually happened. And, Well, it turns out that's not what happened. And uh, I think that's why river swimming, in addition, just the pure fun of it, um, became really, really important to me. And what I really, really, I always had it in my mind, I wanted to write a book. And when I did the river swim, I thought, oh, geez, well, that was a good conclusion to a book. And as I started thinking it all through and putting it together, it started to make, I won't say perfect sense to me, but it made a lot more sense to me.
1: really got the sense in the book, actually, that it, it was building to that. You know, when you're sort of looking through, because I mm. have a sneaky peek, and it went this, 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 and then it <laughs> went through either. I was like, oh, okay, this is what we're building towards. But yeah. I was intrigued, because you sort of, in the book, it, it very much, I, I very much got your mindset that it was, well, if I keep pushing, if I keep working hard enough, I can achieve. And I think you say yeah. it in a couple, a couple of times, you say, I can do this, I can do this, I can achieve anything and you used mm-hmm. it as well in your chiropractic uh, story around the lady that you got walking again. So yeah. you get this real sense of you feeling like, if I believe strong enough, if I work hard enough, I can do this. And then yeah. it, it kind of, when you talk about the, the the childlessness and the adoption, I kind of felt my heart sink for you as I read it because it's like, oh, it's kind of blown a, blown a hole in that, that whole ethos that you've got. How, how did you... If you don't mind me asking, how did you get through that? Because it does kind of go against your. It felt very much it, like it, your values.
0: It it went against everything that I believed for you know a, um for a very long time. Uh, and that, um, as as a triathlete, you know, I mean, um, I'd, I'd never, you know, I'd never failed to finish a race in my life. I never quit a workout. i you know I mean I was, you know uh it it the never give up mentality is kind of ingrained in the sport i mean if you you know even a short triathlon is, if you go fast enough it's pretty hard and um you know even after years and years of doing it i'm 40 i'm almost 47 now and i started doing it when i was you know just about to turn 14 um you know barring something disastrous going wrong in a triathlon you know i mean it, it's I'm confident I can do it, but I mean, you still have to go a long way and keep putting, well, first one stroke in front of the other, keep spinning your legs and then keep one foot in front of the other. And if you don't quit and nothing really, really disastrous goes wrong, you, you'll get there. And, uh, that's the attitude I kind of had towards, well, everything I ever did. Um, and then when I went up to this really unexpected thing of childlessness, I mean, first with, with childlessness, I guess it was, I was shocked because, you know, I mean, I, you know, I I was reasonably healthy, you know, I'd always avoided the nasties, never did any alcohol, never did drugs, you know, looked after my body, you know, the idea that something was wrong with it. I mean, it was me that, uh, you know, as a result of a hernia that I have no memory of, because it happened at age one, uh, that's why I can't have children. Uh, So that was a big shock that, you know, all the care looked after my body. Oh my God, there's something wrong. And that's something pretty fundamentally wrong. And then, um, you know, uh, when five years passed and all the money, all the emotion up and down and, you know, uh, all the, you know, just heart wrenching and, you know, I mean, um, ups and downs that went along over that five years. And then you realize, well, due to circumstances, I have you know, no control over, no influence whatsoever, it's ripped away. And it wasn't because I gave up, uh, but, you know, in a sense, I felt like I had to give up and that really ate away at me for a little while. And, uh, you know, most important, not because I felt that I had to give up. I mean, that's that's the analogy I give as a triathlete about, you know, never give up and all of a sudden you're forced to give up. Um, obviously, I mean, it was the grief from thinking you're going to be a dad and thinking my wife's going to be a mom and well, that's not going to happen. And well, as I described in my book, I was in an ultra marathon and it just fell apart. And, uh, that was the first race that I ever couldn't finish. And, uh, so it, 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 it in, it's hard to say if that was kind of faded or something like that. I mean, I don't really believe in, I don't don't know. I I don't wanna talk about the structure of the universe, but I don't know what to make of it. But I mean, it was was, was, in retrospect, strangely appropriate and tragic at the same time that the first race I ever couldn't finish um, happened just almost directly after the first thing in my life that I found I couldn't finish. Um, You know, I couldn't get to the finish line of adoption. And I don't necessarily want to talk about having children as a finish line, but as a triathlete, it's just an appropriate analogy. And um, in this case, but um, uh, yeah, it, it 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 was really hard work, and I just had this absolute meltdown out on the course of a ultra marathon, where you know not only was I grieving the loss of children and that I never had, and um, you know I'd sold my business, we were literally moving interstate, and I did this race en route moving interstate and then two days before I came down with the flu and I was standing at the start line absolutely broken. 98% of that was over the adoption and the rest of the other circumstances were thrown on top of that. And it was literally a case of I can't actually even move my body by the time I ran 50k and it was a 100k race. And um, yeah, I mean, I, I had a meltdown at the aid station where I literally toppled over and literally couldn't move. And the very, very kind volunteers, this is in the Blue Mountains of Australia, just outside of Sydney, uh, they were looking after me. And I assume they thought I was having a meltdown because I you know, didn't finish the race, but it had nothing to do with that. And that was the first time in all my years as an endurance athlete that I didn't care about the race. And um, in many ways, you know, that helped me become a bit more realistic about, um, you know, my attitude of never give up. I mean, there it's I guess you could say it seems admirable in some way to say you never give up, but then you sort of realize there are times where giving up and moving on and leaving something behind is actually appropriate, even if it's painful. And I guess that's that's what that chapter of my life was about was figuring out when is it appropriate to, you know move on and uh, even if you didn't get what you wanted and yeah
3: that comes up so often i think in in the conversations that that i think we have on the podcast from our listeners um life actually last, i don't know about the three of you but certainly when i've started to speak a bit more about my journey one of the things i frequently get asked is how do you know when to stop and hmm. what came across in I mean it, it's a one you, you wrote a fantastic storyteller I just want to say that first and foremost I, Thank I, do. You. I do an awful lot of books you're <laughs> welcome an awful <laughs> lot of books um, in self-publishing in that area I helped an awful lot of out in my other hat and varying degrees of of success with how they write um you are an absolutely incredible storyteller I think just as as a guest here but also it's just such an absorbing book I genuinely mean that I've sat and just read the book and have gone oh my goodness I really need to turn the light out and go to sleep now Um, (laughs) and I think what comes across from it is 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 yes there's this incredible story of the endurance and I think for me, it came across very vividly that as someone who um is fascinated by by, by a triathlete but would never be a triathlete. <laughs> <laughs> There's no way. Physically <laughs> you are in the other form. But it, it's it's the, the sense of joy that you get from that, but also that mm-hmm. there was never any kind of sort of I think people think maybe there's some kind of light bulb moment, some big revelation, you know, where, I don't know, maybe something godly happens, I don't know, where you suddenly think, oh, this is this epiphany and, and I am no longer this person, I am this person. Um, and I think uh-huh. that came across very much in in your writing, that it was, it's it's a gradual thing, isn't it? It's not sort of a so great epiphany. And as you say, life Circumstances way beyond control can often affect the outcome of things that we thought that we could control.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I've sort of arrived at the conclusion that you don't control anything. You I mean you have influence? And I mean, mm-hmm. uh, when I talk about, you know, when I've talked about this through, and I don't know that I can articulate it, um, just off the top of my head, very, very well. But if, yeah, I, I've heard talks and had conversations with people about not having control and, you know, the argument against that sometimes is, well, if you don't have any control, well, why bother doing anything? And, you know, I mean, I do think we have influence over outcomes to a certain extent, um, you know, cause if you don't do anything, nothing is going to happen. Um, but, you know, you don't control, you know, from an endurance sport perspective, you don't control your genetics. So, I mean, you know, you don't control whether you're not, you're going to be, you know, an Olympic caliber athlete, for example, or someone who does this because they just really, really enjoy it. Um, you know, and, um, yeah, the, the, the whole, um, you, you mentioned the word epiphany. I mean, I just remember you you saying that and I've had many, many, I guess you could call epiphanies out either on swimming, cycling or running. And, um you know some of them have been in races some of them been, you know just out in the middle of the mountains or some of them been in lakes and definitely in rivers um most notably the buller river and the clutha river um where i was like really wow this is like a, a journey in my life and uh i wanted to quote this song in my book but as i was writing and getting close to ready to publish i found out you're not actually allowed to quote song lyrics um without the permission from the artist and garth brooks is uh, yeah and uh I,
2: could,
0: I couldn't get a hold of garth brooks well i mean i, I did email him but I, I assume his agent didn't answer me i don't think he garth himself got the uh got the email but uh you know there's this song that he sang uh that was really popular when i was a teenager and it resonated me way back then i'm pretty sure i was 17 at the time i first heard it and uh you know the one of the uh, the, the the chorus is, you know, uh, f- one of the lines is, you know, don't you sit upon the shorelines and say you're satisfied, choose to chance the rapids and dare to dance the tide. And that really resonated with me as a teenager. And I thought that's a pretty cool way to live your life. And then fast forward 30 something years, and I was in the Clutha River actually literally doing that as well as metaphorically doing it. And that's, you know, shame I couldn't quote it in the book, but, you know, Garth's agent never emailed me back, so I couldn't get permission so, <laughs> to quote it, so.
3: Oh, really? <laughs>
0: Yeah.
3: Right, it happens with the best of publishers. Penguin, yeah. Yeah, so. Yeah, <laughs> Most so. of them they would get rejected, so I don't think it's personal.
0: So <laughs> if, if, if Garth Brooks ever listened to this podcast, I don't take it personally. I uh, I think he might have given permission if if he'd known.
2: We'll, we'll pass on his <laughs> best with you. I'm sure he does. Yeah. <laughs> Hey, hey Rob, can yeah. can, I, can I take you back to the Blue Mountains and when um, yep. when you had your meltdown? Mm-hmm. Did you know why it was happening, or did you have to go on on a a journey of self discovery? Now I have to be open here and say that I have not read your book yet. The other girls have been yep. very studious. I haven't. I'm lazy. Yeah, <laughs> but I'm I'm interested to know. Yeah. Did you, know, did you know at that time what it was, or did you have to go on a, on a sort of journey of discovery to, to work out what it was that made you melt down?
0: Well, I, I knew. Well, I mean, take out the Charles aspect of it for a moment. If you're moving it, like, I mean, basically what happened was before I knew that the adoption was going to be shut down, I booked to do this race, and the original plan was I was going to fly over from Adelaide where I was at the time. Um, you know, and... Uh, my wife's uncle actually lives in the blue Mountains, So I was going to stay there, go do the race. And it was going to be like a, you know, a several day holiday, um, you know, take out the childlessness and the failed adoption, you know, having forced to pull the plug just, you know, very, very short time before that, you know, I sold my business, which came about actually after we pulled the plug on adoption. Well, it, the plug was pulled on us, I should say, but if you're moving interstate, And you're en route, you know, after selling a business and trying to move into a new home, literally homeless at the time, and then come down with the flu. That's not the best time to run an ultra marathon. But um, then when you throw in the enormous grief that I was feeling, and in retrospect, what had happened was the, the plug was pulled on adoption. Um, and then very shortly after, just, I don't know if it was coincidentally or fate intervened. We, we had this job offer in Brisbane. I thought, okay, we'll take that because we wanted to be closer to my wife's family. And my wife's sister has two young boys and we thought, okay, I'll be cool aunt and uncle. Um, and so we went through the process of, you know, the very stressful process of selling my business and then of course, preparing to move interstate, which is, stressful at the best of times, but what had happened was I didn't deal with the grief of, you know, in a perfect world, I would have taken a time out, not run an ultra marathon and not sold my business and not moved interstate and taken some time, you know, I don't know, take a tropical vacation or something and just deal with not having children, but that's not what I did. And that's, in retrospect, that was, I'm not going to say stupid. I, I think I was it's what I had to do at the time, um, but it's not what I'd recommend to be anyone going through the journey, put it that way. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I just went in keep going mode, keep going, and that's probably the triathlete in me. And, I, and my wife, you know, she's not a triathlete, but she's into hiking and cycle touring, so she's, you know, uh, she's no slouch about keeping going either. And, um, yeah, so I was on the start line utterly broken, and I think – I remember thinking on the start line, I was like, okay, what this run is going to be about is I'm going to power through this and just I'm going of find the inner strength that I didn't, you know, even deeper, dig deep. And I'm going to have some kind of revelation out there. And I kind of planned to have some kind of revelation. Um, but I mean, I was on the start line, like I say, grieving badly and stress from moving homeless and with the flu and I, I didn't stand a chance. I mean, I, I'm actually amazed in retrospect, I made it 50 kilometers. <laughs> and so I think the idea of planning to have some kind of revelation was. It, it, it wasn't the right mindset to go in. I mean, you can never plan to have one, but that's what I had hoped would happen. I get—I don't want to say I planned a revelation. I i would kind of hoped something would come to me while I was out there. And uh, yeah, I mean, I, I guess what, ended in, in up coming to me I guess the best way of saying it is um I learned that as a triathlete who'd never given up that sometimes you know it is okay to just I don't like the word give up but sometimes you just have to know when is it when is the appropriate time to quit when is the appropriate time to grieve when is the appropriate time to not be strong in grief and you can't stay like that forever of course well I mean I wouldn't you know, I wouldn't recommend it, but I mean, you know, it's we're all human, and we, you know, there everyone has their breaking point, and I found mine, and uh, um, and I think that was valuable in itself. So, um, that's what that Ultraman marathon did for me is, you know, not finishing this race, um, and realizing that I wasn't unbreakable. I mean, endurance athletes throw. Unbreakable and similar words around a lot, and I don't believe anyone's unbreakable. And that was the day I found out that I wasn't. So, yeah, did I answer your question? I, I'm not 100% sure I did.
2: Um, <laughs> I'll, give you the, I'll give you the context of my question. So, um, for me, as an example, um, it, I was. I was in this really weird state that I didn't know what was going on. And then I had to go on a, on a journey of discovery to, to sort of work out, okay, I'm grieving here. Um, mm-hmm. and, and there are other issues in life. And I just, I just wanted to get your take on that. If, if that was, you know, that, that journey of self you know, was it, was it sometime afterwards when you was able to pick it apart and go, right. Cause I mean, well, what, I guess you've actually answered that question where you p- picked it apart and went, well, I did this, I, this, there was this happening, there was this happening, this was happening, and it wasn't a great combination. So yes, no. in, in, in short, yeah, you did.
0: <laughs> and, and one thing I'd add is, one thing, one thing I'd add is like, when I was grieving, um, you know, what came on my mind when I was at this aid station, you know, approximately halfway through this hundred kilometer run, when I was waiting for my wife to come get me, I, I actually felt guilty about grieving because I'd known, I've, I've known people who've lost children they've had. And mm-hmm. it just came on my mind, like, um, that I'm grieving the loss of children that I'd never had. Mm-hmm. And uh, in, in one way or another, I was comparing my grief to the grief of actually losing a child. And then I started to feel guilty about that because I didn't know that I had the right to feel that kind of grief about children that I never had. And I didn't, and I, I don't know if I still know the answer to that. That's what I felt. And I, d- I didn't articulate that for a long time. I, actually the only person I ever told that to before I wrote my book was my wife. Mm-hmm. And um, it was just one of those things that it, it took me a while to, you know, not be beating myself up as like, you know, you know, I, I guess it'd be fair to say one of the worst things that can happen to a human being is losing their child. And well, I never had that. And uh, but you know, I mean, I I thought that I would, and then that was ripped away. And then, like I say, um, that's what I was feeling. And I was not only wrestling with that grief, but then I was beating myself up for grieving. And you shouldn't feel this grief because you didn't lose a child. And then I was like, well. Did I? Didn't I? And I just, you know, it was just a self-destructive day. Uh, well, not. Yeah, well, the whole day was self-destructive. In retrospect, I shouldn't have been at the start line. I should have had sense enough to pull the pin. Uh, but, well, I didn't. Um, so valuable lessons were learned. And, um, yeah, like I said, I, I don't know that I still answered the question, Do I? did I have the right to feel that grief? Comparing it to children that have been lost, By parents but that's what that's what I was feeling so I just allowed myself to feel pain and you know triathletes like a certain kind of pain but that wasn't pain I liked and yeah it took a long time to pick myself up after that one and but you know I guess the framework and structure and discipline of triathlon was one of one of the many things and that helped me keep going and of course most importantly you know having a loving relationship with my wife and those two things, you know, you get up and keep going and um yeah it it was it was it was a rough time.
3: (laughs) Yeah.
1: um, I can
2: certainly appreciate that.
1: I think we all can. I think we've all been there, haven't we, in various ways. Even our listeners are probably chiming Mm. with a lot with what you say where you sort of go, should I feel this grief? Can I measure it against other people's grief? Should I be measuring it against other people's grief? I think it's very hard to contextualize it
2: when
1: we don't talk about it, do we?
0: Yeah. I mean, there's a time for comparison and, you know, and and these days with social media comparison is, you know, often gets too much out of control. And I mean, I I don't, I I don't know that I have the right answer for, you know, what grief can you compare it to and whether or not you should, Um, I just, you know, would, like I say, as someone who used to think, in retrospect i guess arrogantly uh, i don't think i'm an arrogant person by nature but the thought that i was unbreakable in retrospect if you pick it apart there's some level of arrogance in that and then to find out that i wasn't and then you know just to absolutely feel this grief and be basically on on the ground unable to even pick yourself up um there, there, there was value in that day. And like I say, I mean, I do think at some point, no matter what's going on, uh, you know, you do had to pick yourself up. And fortunately I did and kept going. Um, But uh, you you just didn't end up with the life that I thought I was going to have. And then you learn to make peace with that. And, you know, um, and then eventually, you know, you know, well, I lived in Queensland for a while. Then we moved lived to Singapore for a year. And then we're now living in New Zealand and now having a different kind of adventure. And my wife's become a writer. And I, I'd always had it in mind from a very young age, you know, from the time I was 20 odd years old. I think, oh, yeah, I'll write a book about endurance sport, but it just didn't happen. And then swam the Clutha And then a month later, the lockdown, COVID lockdown happened. I thought, oh, I got time to write a book. So, that's what I started during that uh, during that very weird time that we're not a hundred percent out of yet.
1: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'm curious. So you've sort of said you have come out of it. Was the Clutha River part of that, or because you were going to do the Straits of Gibraltar, weren't you? And you sort of said, oh, you know, it didn't it didn't that didn't pan out either. But then you went right, yeah, Clutha River. I'm well, doing it.
0: well, yeah. I mean, uh, this, you know. Yeah. The Strait of Gibraltar didn't happen for reasons beyond my control. And then, um, uh, that was another blow because that was kind of what I thought was my dream swim. And then, um, I, you know, swimming was supposed to be, you know, if, if people read my book, I mean, I had it in my mind that swimming and triathlon was the one thing supposed to be in my mind, the one thing, no one could ever tell me, no, you can't do it. And someone told me, no, you can't do it. And then, you know, I mean, I, it took me a number. It, my wife and I planned this before the attempt at the Strait, where we went cycle touring around Italy for a little over a month uh, before moving to New Zealand. And it was around Italy that I was like, you know, I made peace with that and then, um, moved to New Zealand and river swimming, you know, I, you know marathon swimming. I thought maybe I'm just not meant to be doing this. Um, You know, because a lot of the marathon swims, like, for example, the English Channel, the Strait of Gibraltar, the Cook Strait here in New Zealand, just as a, just so, you know, swimming, you might think that's a pretty cheap sport. Um, And if you just do it in the pool, well, it's reasonably cheap. But, you know, to swim the Cook Strait, a one-day swim, uh, that would take me approximately nine hours, would cost me $6,500 just to get the permit. Then, of course, the travel. I mean, obviously, it's not that expensive travel given that I'm in New Zealand, but um, yeah, my wife, um, a very wise woman. Um, I really, really married the right woman on so many levels, but um, um, we were at this lake. Uh, it, it was winter. So, I mean, in, in New Zealand in winter, you don't swim across the lakes down here. It is too cold um, to do a marathon swim in, anyway. Um, Lake Tekapo, we were standing in front of this lake, our first vacation, um, to that area since we moved there. And she said, look, you know, if you, if you were to swim across that beautiful lake in summer, would you really have a worse time than if you were swimming across one of these really expensive s- swims, like the English Channel or the Cook Strait or anything else? And, you know, all it would cost is, you know, you'd buy your kayak supporter a pizza and you would know, stay in a hotel room and, you know. Would you have a worse time? And turns out she was right. So what I really adopted in my mindset was, uh, you know, I get to do all these marathon swims in some of the most beautiful locations you could ever imagine. I just mentioned Milford Sound. you know, I just paid the support boat captain for the fuel and you know, bought my kayak support team pizzas and swam in Milford Sound, you know, who you know that's probably the most beautiful spot in the world I could ever imagine swimming. And uh, you know, swimming the Clutha that, was a small, small fraction of the cost of um, doing the straight, uh, the the Cook Strait, or the Strait of Gibraltar, and then turns out, well, I really, really like river swimming even more. And there's no organized river swims because very few people are idioti- idiotic enough to swim down these big rivers. So you just do it yourself. So um, it just became, you know. Um, I've always had this sort of thing where I'd like doing things that not very many people do. And when I started doing triathlons, it was a relatively new sport. It was kind of, well, that's what the weirdos do. So I like being the weirdo and well, more people do triathlon now and now I'm doing different types of triathlon based adventures. And I still compete in the on triathlon, but just have more adventures than I, uh, uh, than I used to I'm not so much focused on racing.
2: I think you dodged a bullet anyway there, Rob, because I've heard I've heard a whisper, actually saw it in the TV mm-hmm. show, that there's a mm-hmm. lot of muck that comes out of the um through the Straits of the border from the Mediterranean into the Atlantic. So yep. I'm sure that I'm sure the Cluther or the, the lake in New Zealand will be much more cleaner.
0: Well, that's definitely true. Uh, New Zealand, one of the things we're blessed with is uh, you know, it's a lot cleaner in our lakes, rivers, and the oceans around here are very, very clean. And like one of the reasons I decided against the English channel for a while was, you know, people who swim the English channel, they, uh, count swimming through mile long oil slips, uh, oil slicks, and then peeing out oil Mm -hmm. for five or six days afterwards. And that's not something I like to do. And, um, I've seen people do marathon swims through pretty polluted bodies of water, but I like, uh, I like pristine bodies of water. So, uh, uh, it's a lot more fun, and um, yeah, so I'm really happy making up my own adventures. And uh, because I make up my own adventures, I don't have to pay anyone to do them, and uh, you get to do a lot more of them.
1: Mm. What's the best bit then? Is it the build up to it, the the beginning, or the the middle, or the end? Which is the best bit that you you know? What's the bit that keeps you going? Because these are these um, are huge, aren't they?
0: Um, for me, it was a challenge. I mean, if you yeah, you've read my read my book, uh, you know, I got myself into some pretty Crazy situations where, you know, you just like, you know, how the heck did that happen? You know, like my thing in Mongolia where I thought I was going to get squashed by wrestlers and my fiasco in the Montreal airport after the national championships, you know, you're like, oh my God, how did that happen? You know, so I've had a bit of a knack for getting myself into some, you know, pretty idiotic or in, in retrospect, very comedic situations. So planning the expedition to the Klutha, I mean, you know, it's important. To know, like in a river swim, especially a big river swim, I mean, it's not as simple as just get in the water and go for it. Um, you know, all the safety planning, all the logistics, all the, you know, there's just so much that went into it. And I think because I just had a triathlon background and I developed over the years, yeah, you know, I know what I'm doing when I'm training for a triathlon, you know, planning the logistics of such a big adventure was something I'd, you know, and something that had never actually been done. Um, that was, that was really satisfying. I wouldn't say I enjoy that as much as the swim, but it was satisfying to figure out that I could do it, um, and come out the other end and still have everything intact. Um, you know, so, um, but you know, it it is the, the swim itself. Like, I mean, I talk about in my book, how in still water swimming in the ocean or in a lake, you know, I mean, you get into this meditative state, but in river swimming, when you're going through the rapids, I mean, that really you really got to be present time conscious and, uh, you know, the ability to get into, you know, often what people call the zone. I like to think of it as swimming meditation. Um, that's valuable. And, you know, I do yoga and I would, I do see the value in traditional medita- meditation of just sitting there and getting into a good state. But despite many, 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 many years of practice, if I sit there and try to meditate, I just end up thinking about some, you know, darth vader or homer simpson or something stupid you know it just doesn't work for me and if if you can do it good on you i wish i could too but i get into that state in open water swimming but in river swimming it's different because you really got to be ready for the next sprint to get around a corner swim through the rapids and when you're swimming through rapids it's all about absolute present time consciousness there's nothing else other than what's going on right now and i really like that aspect of it as well um in addition to not feeling you have any control you're going with the flow but you have a unique skill set to navigate this well this rapids and and you know i mean then of course you know a river can be compared to life on so many levels you know because there's calm bits i mean parts of the klutha are really calm almost like swimming in a lake but you know get a little bit further upstream you know well storm's coming you know i mean. Sailors say something to the effect of, you know, life is like the ocean. You, you know, you're smooth sailing one day and you're crashing on the rocks the next. Well, in a river, you're going through smooth bits where you can just kind of, you know, cruise along and really enjoy the ride. And then all of a sudden, well, geez, you got to sprint, get around corners, dodge rocks and, uh, and really have a lot of trust in your support team because, I mean, they're the ones that were telling me yep, get ready to sprint. There's a turn coming up, go to the river, left, go to the river, right. And you just have to have trust in what they're saying and trusting people and putting your trust in the right people. And yeah, there's just so many levels of river swimming that I found as a metaphor for life. And yeah. Um, you know, and the aspect of no control is just one of those things that became really important to me after accepting childlessness.
3: You speak in the book about control and one of the one of the bits I found most fascinating that I think not many people talk about actually was you talked about the cost of things, how much it costs you to do things and Mm-hmm. I want you just to read one thing, which was that you've been, you say that I had been so paralyzed by the fear of going bankrupt that I often went weeks without looking at the bank account. After a long hike one day, Tansy and I decided I'd confront those fears. And you go on mm-hmm. to talk about confronting those fears. It's yep. this, but I you cover so many things by simply. I could go back to storytelling, but actually, you're you're breaking so many taboos because I, I also put on the full stop podcast social media and actually it was my own social media how I was reading the book recommended it to everybody because actually you're busting a lot of myths. One is about adoption is easy as we've all heard. Um, absolutely, mm-hmm. <laughs> you can completely upend anyone's sense of, of reason for that. Um, we all know yeah. that but often not through our own lived experiences. You talk about it so openly that I think even I had, I had learned something from you and I thought I knew enough having tentatively looked around the edges at this ourselves. I, I learned a lot more mm. from you. So thank you for that. But also you talk about money and you talk about you know, the worry of that. No one talks about that either, do they really? And you, Yeah, you I mean, you know.
0: well, I mean, I think my fear of money that I developed in my 30s well, I wouldn't say I developed in my thirties. I, I became more aware of my fear, um, in my thirties. Like, I, I, I don't know how in retrospect I got through college cause I was a part-time lifeguard and part-time swim instructor and on heavy student loans. And I, you know, I have no idea how I managed to feed myself and do triathlons. I mean, in college, in retrospect, it doesn't make any financial sense, but, um, but, um, um, but that aside, like, I mean, I, my fear of going bankrupt stemmed from, you know, the mess that followed my parents' divorce when I was a teenager. I mean, my, you know, my father drank away my college fund and everything else that we had and, uh, not just mine, but my sister's and, you know, and, you know, my mother, who's a school teacher. So, you know, we were reasonably well off, but certainly by no means wealthy, um, you know, I mean, she was in serious financial strife for quite a few years after, after all of that. And, um, you know, um, so then after I finally paid off my student loans and then, you know, having all these expenses adding up for a five-year adoption process that ultimately didn't give us any children. I mean, I've joked, you know, I've basically sent kids to college financially, but, uh, haven't got any kids. Um, but um, yeah, I found confronting that fear finally quite liberating and um, you know, that's why I chose to include that in the book because um, it was something that was paralyzing me. And then again, I thought I was taking control, but you know, it, it was us ultimately the lesson I needed to learn is sound financial management. And I, I compared it in the book to triathlon. Like, I mean, I got to a certain stage where yes, I'd made it to the world championships in triathlon, but, you know, kind of realized, well, probably not going to be the world champion. And I thought when I started confronting my fear of money, I was, okay, well, I'm probably never going to become a, you know, I think I said the next Warren Buffett, uh, you know, iconic, wealthy man, you know, I'm never going to not likely, I should say to uh, become a billionaire. But if I, you know, manage this properly and put some discipline into it, well, I, uh, you know, at least I can, you know, keep my head above water and, you know, try to thrive. And that's, you know, been doing that with similar discipline to triathlon for many years now. So it's, uh, you know, that's not an invitation to, uh, for any kidnappers who might Take my wife for ransom, you know. I mean, like it's they won't get wealthy doing that. But you know, I love that definitely... part of the
3: book. <laughs> that made me
0: laugh. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
3: You call it the fund. Yeah, I mean, Yeah, the absolute savings—they're not touchable unless paying kidnappers for Tansy's ransom is what. Yeah, you're I mean, ten,
0: to, to, yeah. Tansy and I have joked that I've been mean, if uh, if, uh, if 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 I get kidnapped, I got I got to escape on my own. Uh, she won't pay the <laughs> ransom, but uh, if she gets kidnapped, she should try to escape, but if she can't, I'll pay it. <laughs>
3: that's always a handy thing just to have in, in marriage, I think. I, yeah. I, I've got one of those agreements, but
0: maybe that's a joke. That's, that's a joke, but, I mean, we were just sick of being fi- we were just sick of being – after the adoption process fell apart, we were just sick of being in financial strife, so we just really had to tackle it head-on and – you know, um off we off we went. So and I, I think
3: mean, that's interesting too that you talk about you know the adoption costs money. You know, yeah. people forget that. They don't realise. I mean, you know, like lots of things cost money, IVF costs money. Um good mm-hmm. I know that one, but um but yeah, you, adoption costs a lot of money, it really does. I was astounded by the figures that you write, but it's it's true, it's it's another area that people yeah.
0: don't. No it, it was just it was just one of those things that, you know, it always felt like, you know, after a few years of it going on, it's just like every now and then, you know, like, you know, I get it in my head, you know, I wanted to do the strategy right of Gibraltar. I'd start saving up for that. But then you get a call from the agency saying, um, oh, you got a $2,000 bill for this or a $1,500 bill for that. And then, you know, there was a time I was trying to save up for a new bike and I was like, okay, I've actually almost got the money here. Oh, no, no, I don't. I'm giving that to the adoption department. You know, and, you know, so, I mean, you know, I, I always reconciled in my head. It was like, well, I want kids more than I want a new bike, but you know, it's it, over five years, it, it got, it, it wears you down. And, you know, like I say, it was pulled apart from us, you know, not because we gave up, but, you know, um, in some sense it was almost even fortunate that, um, we, it was pulled away from us. Cause I don't, you know, we've, we couldn't afford it anymore. So. And yeah, I, I think it is important for anyone who's considering adoption or something like that, that they do know it's, it's just not something that's given away. I mean, it's just, you know, it's a lot, a lot of money.
1: It's a real tangible response. to why don't you just adopt, isn't it? It's like, well, actually, it's a bit more
0: yeah. to it. Yeah. Yeah. And I, yeah. So, I mean, you know, and as a 40 something year old man, I mean, um, you know, people tend to ask me, you know, if I meet them for a new time and, you know, living in a new country, well, I've been here four years now, but I'm still meeting lots of people, you know, I mean, the question is put to me is like, how many kids do you have? Not do you have children? And, um, you know, um, so there's that. And, you know, and if I say I don't have children, most people don't pry into your business, but you meet some people who don't have any, what's the word I'm looking for? They don't have that, uh, sense of like, maybe I shouldn't ask this person until I know them a bit better. <coughs> but, um, you know, it's, uh, you know, you know, well, why don't you, and then, you know, say sometimes if I'm not in the mood to talk about it and if I don't feel comfortable with that, or if I don't feel comfortable with that person, it's like, ah, it just never happened for us. And then you try to change the subject, but sometimes people are pushy and then, um, um, you know, now I just say, oh, that's such a long story. Uh, I invite you to read my book. Nice. Like, I'll tell people who I'm becoming friends with, you know, like if I'm actually be interested in becoming friends with a person I'm talking to who's new, who doesn't know my story. Like, if I like this person and I feel comfortable with them and, like, it's not the first thing that we're talking about, you know, like, I mean, if I've gotten to know them something, some, you know, and, like, I make a lot of new friends somewhat regularly Mm -hmm. because I, you know, I've lived, I live in a relatively new country, but, um, you know, if someone just randomly just starts asking me how many children I have, you know, I don't dive into the story, but if they're a bit pushy and I don't really want to talk about it, I say, hey, if you really, really want to know, I, I, I don't, I don't say it like that. That sounded rude. You know, like if you, if you are genuinely interested in why I don't have children, I did write this book and it really helped me reconcile why I don't, you know, but now and again, someone is kind of rude. So I, I guess I won't say I've never been rude about it, but like, <laughs> um, but you know, um, like just it, it. very coincidentally, well, maybe it's not a coincidence. I don't know. Um, Two of my patients uh, as a chiropractor, one of them is six months pregnant. I hadn't seen her for a little while. and She showed up again at my office with some back pain. And she said she was six months pregnant. And uh, um, she said she didn't want to be. And um, she'd read my book and she offered me her child. Um, you know, I mean, she was, I wouldn't say joking, but she wasn't, she wasn't being serious. Mm-hmm. Um, but she was like, "Oh, I know you don't have kids, and you would like to have them. Do you want this one? Because I don't really know that I do." And um, it was awkward to change the subject to. So tell me about your back pain and how I can help you with that. Um, it was a, it was a weird moment, and
3: um, I'm so sorry. That is it, just awful. That's it, yeah,
0: it, it, yeah. I mean, and like. You know, sometimes when, you know, I see parents going through the daily grind of raising a kid and all that sort of thing, I mean, like, you know, I mean, I'm sure the same thing would have happened to me if I was in the grocery store with a screaming three-year-old and, you know, you feel like punting them across the vegetable oil, uh, you know, I mean, you all, you know, we're all familiar with with, with that sort of thing, but, uh, you know, you see that sort of thing happen You know, and now and again, you do think, oh, geez, well, you know, I don't have to deal with that. But then you catch myself myself thinking that, you know, like, actually, I really would have loved to deal with that, Um, you know, and try to figure out how to guide a kid through not throwing tantrums and helping them grow up to be a well-adjusted person. You know, um, obviously, when you're going through all of those things now and again, you just reach the end of your rope and you don't want to deal with it. but um, yeah, it, you know, like I've, I've had it said to me a number of times where like, you know, as a 40 something, it's like, Oh, it must be so awesome to have the freedom of not having children. And, and I said, to people will, yeah, I'm actually very content. I have 95% good with not having children. I've reached that point. Uh, I'll never be fully good with it. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, I do enjoy my life. I do enjoy the things that I do the things that I do are not just filler. Um, I would I always look forward to, for example, learning how to be a triathlete with a kid and, you know, like, you know, not necessarily molding a kid into a triathlete, but I've always imagined doing push-ups with a five-year-old on my back or, you know, pulling one of those cycle carts behind my bike, you know, and, you know, pulling a kid on my bike and, and then figuring out what they want. And, you know, and it, Once they started showing interest in whatever they show interest in, you know, my mother was really good at feeding whatever habit that I had. And I always thought that's a pretty good lesson to try to pass on. So I always wanted to do that. So, you know, I mean, I always try to see beyond, Um, you know, if you see a kid having a tantrum and a parent trying to hold their, you know, hold it together and not lose their temper. That has to be heard. It's got to be frustrating, but it's a frustration that I would have liked to have had. And uh, like I say, I mean, it just—it's—it's very strange. In 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 the last few weeks, two different women have offered me a baby, one that has been born and one that has not been born. Um, and one had read my book, one hadn't. But you know, there was—I have another patient who was having. She has an eighteen-month-old who she was having a hard time with and she said oh god do you just want to take him home and i was like (laughs) Mm. yeah um she didn't know my story but um yeah it's yeah it's it's hard to know what to say in response to that
1: god yeah it's just such a trigger isn't it it's just such what do you say i mean what happens if you say yeah all right then you know, if you're feeling like devil may care, just like, well, yeah, all right, I, I have said
3: that <laughs> actually there to somebody. There's a look of horror yeah, on the other that? person's mm. face. I've actually said, yes, okay, I can do that. And mm. obviously I would <laughs> not, but the wow. horror yeah. is then... Yeah. And it takes narrative because it's it's insulting to you. It's in, actually, you know, it, it devalues their own agony and that of every parent going so it's the devaluation of that and trying to get rid of that the source of that but it devalues the child that poor child as well yeah. at the end of the tether mm-hmm. understand that part but when you actually turn around and go yeah okay it's then the, the yeah. thought that, oh god you're not actually good enough to take the child oh my god what I, I kind of thinking that maybe have yeah, that whole thing of being—I was I talking about it yesterday. About it was—it was in a meditation class. Ironically, Rob, I do meditate, and but anyway, it
0: was. <laughs> I was, wish <laughs> I could. I
3: know <laughs> that's all right. I, I can't swim the river. Don't worry. Um, <laughs> like. um, I wouldn't even try. I—I was talking to Bindi Shah, who's been on on the podcast before, and we were, we were talking about. um it was about kind of owning your own sort of fears, but also about being judged as well. And we and I talked about how I call it the Legoland thing. So in, in the UK here, mm. there is Legoland Park. And they previous, I don't know if this is still true, a listener will probably tell us, um, but as far as I understand, a few years ago, they wouldn't let you into the park unless you had a child with you. you mm. allowed yeah. You. And at the time, I was livid. I was just like, "How dare you create this thing?" Now, I kind of think, well, actually, no, you you don't get my money. I'll go and spend it somewhere more well, interesting. Because who the hell wants to go to Legoland? You know, when you've got mm. you know lots of beautiful natural places to look at, why do I want to do that? And I kind of <laughs> we're riffing about how it's okay to then take a child from outside the perimeter of Legoland to get in, but you can't do it in the park. Apparently, no. um, you know, can't nick a child there either. And it's and it's so. Oh, it makes me so angry. It's one really of the things I find more angry-making than anything else to be offered that because adoption, IVF, you can forgive the fact that people may not understand that, or in fact many of the reasons why our listeners and we are all childless, not by choice, they can be complicated and not talked about. But actually, to turn around and offer a child to somebody who you may who isn't a parent and you might not know why, or you may know why, worse when they know why, is yeah. Disrespectful on every single um, yeah. yeah.
0: I mean, and, you know, some, something else that, you know, somewhat recently happened. Uh, we had an attempted break in at my office. Um, they tried to break down the front door. They didn't get in. They da- they severely damaged the front door, but they didn't actually get in. And anyway, you know, we got there the next day and it's like, okay, well, we got to replace the door. And anyway, we got, we got the door replaced and one of the girls. Who works with me you know she had the only key we hadn't made the copies of the key for the new door yet and she accidentally you know had the key in her pocket she went off you know she got off early before i did and my, my the other staff member and you know she uh didn't realize she had the key in her pocket so we had to call her when we were finished and said you know can you come back and uh you know the, the other person i work with uh, she doesn't work there anymore now but she said um you know, I was going to offer to wait for, you know, for her to come back. You, you know, I was going to say, you just go on. But before I had a chance to say that, she said, I've got plans for my kids, so I can't be the one to stay. And, and I, you know, I just thought, okay, yeah, I'm not going to say anything, but maybe I should have, but, you know, I mean, like, well, you know, I had plans too. They just don't have to involve kids. So I'll just be late for what I was going to do, but you go on. Thanks for that. Um, you know, it was one of those days where just childlessness wasn't even on my mind. I never, wasn't even thinking about it, but, you know, as I was waiting for, you know, to get the key, just like, mm, okay, well, you know, are my non-childless plans invaluable? Um, you know, uh, uh, it was just one of those kind of reminders that, you know, um, and, uh, you know, um, it's been said to me a number of times, you know, when we're trying to figure out who does what work, it's like, you know, well, you can do it. You don't have kids to think about, <laughs> you know, so, uh, you know, you can do the extra, extra mile. And so, well, you know, just because I don't have children doesn't mean I want to live at the office. You know, I do really enjoy my work, but I don't want to live here. I want to do other stuff. So, you know, so, uh, there, there's that, but, uh, um, yeah, so, um, <laughs> Yeah.
3: Yeah, yeah, yeah. and if nothing yeah. Else, yeah. your book just proves so much um that you are so much more than childlessness you are you are just in there's so many things that you do and so many aspects to your life that um <laughs> i'd be kind well, of worried keeping you from some kind of extreme running thing or something
0: <laughs> <laughs> well there's i mean it's been said to me i just want to touch on one thing before i just answer you know that is, you know you, you said the word angry and i was like yeah like i Every now and then, of course, you get angry about anything. I mean, we're all human. We, uh, we have the full range of emotions. But uh, I, I've just been a kind of weird in the sense that, like, I, all my life, I've actually been terrible at being angry. Even when I am arguably justified to get angry about something, I, I'm just not that good at being angry. Um, you know, anytime time I have been, I, you know, I, t- I tend to shut down or just go away. I don't tend to, I'm I'm just not an aggressive person, I guess, is one way of saying it. But um, I I obviously feel irritation or feel sadness sometimes about those sorts of comments. But I mean, I I just, I just, I don't see the value. in. if you do get angry, I just don't feel the the value in staying angry about it. Um, You know, like if, I don't know in this, it's probably always been true, but it's more, obvious or more apparent in this era where people want to create some kind of societal change you know they say the key is to get angry about it and I I don't know that that's true Um, so I've just been comfortable I guess which is somewhat unusual as a man accepting some emotions allowing myself to feel it and then just you know if i and then just move on. And usually the moving on process for me just happens to be involving a swim or a run or a bike ride. Mm. And then you work through it. And, you know, all this extreme running and extreme swimming that I've done, I mean, it's been said to me no shortage of times, even long before I knew about being childless. I mean, you know, obviously I've always been childless, but, you know, before I knew, I you know, before being a father was even thought about, um, you know, you have problems, and all you're trying to do is run or swim away from them. And um, I, I just have never believed that. I always thought that you know it was it was one of the healthy tools to deal with any problem, as well as experience joy. So, um, you know, sometimes you are literally running away from a problem. Sometimes you're running with it, and sometimes you're running towards something. And I've always found that line of thinking valuable as an endurance athlete. And, um, you know, all this running and all this swimming that I do, I mean, it's been said to me by certain people, it's just filler because what else are you going to do? Um, but to me it's not as it. So I've thought that through, I wondered, you know, you know, is there any merit to that? But I mean, um, you know, I've really come to the conclusion that, uh, you know, Sort of thing is what I've always liked to do, and you know, hopefully, will always like to do. And if I find I'm not enjoying it anymore, I'll think of something else. And that's one of the reasons I took up writing. You know, um, I always was a creative little kid and lost touch with that as an adult, so yeah, I wanted to be a writer and no illusions about being a New York Times bestseller, but uh, thought, well, I want to write a book and. I set a joke goal for myself of I want seven people not name my mother to read it, eight, including mom. And, uh, you know, did better than that. So, <laughs> you know, um, you yeah, know, so uh, I found value in that as well. So, um, yeah, it, it's I, I like to do things for the, the for, you know, for the value and the challenge and the joy of it, not necessarily to be the best at something. And in the community that I've been a part of for some reason I found this more so when I lived in Brisbane than anywhere else. Um, you know, people have said to me, well, what's the point in doing something if you're not going to be the best at it, you know, like the, I don't know, what's the word I'm looking for, like macho, um, you know, really blokey way of putting it is like, if you're not going to be the best, don't even show up. Or, you know, if you can't win, don't play or, you know, some variation of that. And, um, you know, I, I guess in addition to the childlessness message and learning, you no, know, when's the right time to give up or move on and realize this isn't the right thing to be fighting for, um, you know, uh, there's value in doing what you enjoy, even if you're not going to be the best. So I found that in my triathlon. I found that in, well, you know, we talked about my money management, I'm not going to be a billionaire, but, value in managing money well and I found value in being a writer even though I'm under no illusions of you know being on the Oprah Winfrey show or um being a New York Times bestseller I found valuable and doing value in, in, in doing it it was very therapeutic and it felt to be like finishing a big triathlon you know very
3: <laughs> I took a lot from that actually from from that part of both your conversation just now, but also just throughout the reading your words as well, because I and, and I actually want to go back to something you said before about how you had imagined having a trailer on your bike with a child in it. And mm-hmm. one of the things I started doing last month was getting back in touch with my inner artist. So mm-hmm. of course, of course, that I, I I told my dad about this and I said it will find your joy and even oh. And I went, yeah, don't judge, um, but it's all about finding your joy in, in art and going back mm-hmm. to something I used to do, but I lost my way with it and stopped, literally just stopped dead with it because I had the idea in my head, so ingrained in my head that of course I'd get all the paints out and I'd muck around with the, with my child and so I couldn't do it anymore I stopped and actually it's a fundamentally huge part of my life massive part of my life Mm -hmm. where I was heading before I became a designer and I got sidetracked by that and this thing called the full stop podcast and it's really interesting to kind of to, to, to parallel that with with your words and kind of going back and uncovering what we all might perhaps something deep inside us that we might that gets stuck because of the grief that we are going through, this disenfranchised grief that we feel, but also I think as well, not being the best as you say it something, you know, I'm, I'm never going to be on the walls of the Tate Gallery, but there's always that kind of thing where you think, oh, maybe I, you know, that competitiveness that we all have in life that I'm sure is somewhere tangled up with kind of pronatalism as well, that, you know, we, mm-hmm. this idea of parents that put their pictures up on social media and it's all so perfect and actually everything is imperfect nobody's the best at anything how do you measure the best no one can yeah
0: best, really. well i mean in in the sporting context it's a bit easier to measure the best because mm. you know the first person to cross the line at the olympics is generally speaking the, the best but you know even if they get to that point um you know it's such a common story among athletes like you're the best for a very finite amount of time once you're not uh, i mean you know there's so many athletes that sink into some kind of depression or have you know go off the rails in one way or another not everybody of course but it's a very common story that you know you go from olympic medal to you know some way of really being lost once you are not the best at something and there's a you know a lot of reasons for that like i mean obviously you know it's at a certain point when no matter how hard you push someone is going to beat you you know purely in the sporting context and I mean, most other areas of life, I mean, obviously the best can be quite subjective. Um, but I mean, it beca- that became very apparent to me, you know, when I was living in Brisbane, I mean, I went, I got it in my head, I wanted to go to Bhutan. Um, you know, I always wanted to see that country as a, uh, you know, the country I most wanted to visit and I was going tramping there. We, we used to call it trekking, but here in New Zealand, we call it tramping. So I'll be patriotic for my, <laughs> my new countrymen. Uh, but you know, the, the highest we were going to get to was 5,500 meters. And, you know, someone that I'd been training with had said to me, well, why would you only go to 5,500 meters in the Himalayas when there's Mount Everest, not that far away from u Why don't you aim to climb that? And, you know, I mean, I do see the value in doing something along the lines of climbing Everest. I mean, I'm not a mountaineer, I'm a triathlete, but yeah, you know, I, I just found that really sad. I mean, he didn't see the value in going, seeing, the beautiful Himalayas of Bhutan and the culture associated with that very, very unique and isolated country, all he could see was, well, that's not the highest you could go. So why would you even bother? Mm-hmm. And um, well, you know, um, I've really made, you know, I, I, like I said, I, I tried to get across my book. There's value in, you know, whether it's a marathon swimmer, triathlon artwork, reading a book, playing a musical instrument, you know, Uh, whatever it is that lights you up, you know, just, you know, there's value in doing it and it it doesn't have to be the thing you do to make a living. I mean, you know, I just think that it's important for everyone to have something in their life that really lights them up and, you know, something that really makes you go, "Hmm, that's pretty cool. I really like doing that. And uh, you know, for me, obviously it's triathlon and marathon swimming and now writing and and a few other things as well. And uh, you know, having some kind of, joyful activity is important, whether you're childless or not. And, um, you know, so that's one of the many things that have, you know, got me out to the other side where, like I say, 99% of the time, I'm good with it. Um, you know, now and again, you, like it, anything that's, you know, it's not unique to childlessness. If you've ever experienced any form of grief or trauma now and again, something creeps up where you, like where it bothers you, but I've learned to move through it. Really, I won't say really well. Uh, well, in in my mind, I think I moved through it mostly really well.
2: Mm,
1: but
0: that took. But that. But that took a while.
1: <laughs> I think it did for all of us. I am going to you. So obviously, the 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 book finishes with swimming the Clutha. What what mm-hmm. have you got coming up? What future plans have you got coming up then? Because you say, I'm still doing triathlons. I'm still doing the swims. What other plans yep. have you got?
0: Um, there's there's a lot of them. Um, because I wrote the book and, uh, you know, I've got connected with uh, a number of, uh, you know, many of whom I have known throughout my life and the places I've been. But, um, you know, I made a YouTube documentary of my Clouthius River swim, and I emphasize it's a homemade documentary, not a Netflix-worthy documentary, uh just on the GoPro footage that we took. But you know, like a, an American swimmer who saw my documentary, he's in Utah and he wants to organize a big river swim through the Canyonlands in in Utah. And uh I've never been there. And I thought, well, if he wants to invite me to swim through Canyonlands in Utah, because he re- he watched my documentary, that's something I want to do. And um there's Uh, a multi-day triathlon that I'm going to organize also based partly in the Clutha, Um, the upper Clutha, which had some of the strongest rapids. I want to organize a six or seven day triathlon down in the town of Wanaka where I swim the Clutha and then run some of the mountains and do some of the mountain biking around there and some road cycling and cycle touring and just uh, swim across Lake Wanaka and swim, you know, the, the neighboring lake, Lake I'm not going to pronounce this correctly. It begins with H and I can never remember how to say it. There's, a, there's a lake directly next to Lake Wanaka and two really beautiful mountain peaks that are just directly next to those lakes uh, that will run a run around. And, um, Uh, So there's that. I'm going to do that this coming summer. Um, I want to swim the Fovo Strait, which is between Stewart Island and this most southern tip of mainland New Zealand. Uh, But there's also on Stewart Island a a massive um, track to hike around. So I thought um, very few people have swam Stewart Island to Invercargill, which is the Fovo Strait. Few people have done it, but I don't think anyone swam the Fovo, then gone hiking on Stewart Island or running around the, the island. Uh, so that's something else I've got in mind. Um, I think my, my dream trip that I want to do with my wife, who's into cycle touring, she doesn't swim, but she she uh, hikes and she rides bike. We want to ride her bike from uh, Croatia down to the, through to Greece and then into Cyprus and Crete. Um, that's the dream trip that we have as a something we'll do together, not just, um, you know, um, about my swimming and, um, through the people I've been meeting, I'd like to just find different rivers that are clean and, uh, to swim around the world. But one of my goals that I want to do <coughs> oddly enough is from my hometown. I never, ever swam the Humber river, which flows into my hometown, uh, from a little bit further inland in Newfoundland. And, uh, I don't know that anyone, I don't think anyone's ever swam that. I'd be surprised if someone had, um, and I'd compare the strength of that river to the Clutha. So, uh, that's a river that I'd like to do, you know, I don't know, in a way come full circle where I grew up, uh, haven't, haven't been able to go home for a while. So, uh, when I do, um, I'd like to do that. And, you know, um, I want to be cycle touring, hiking and, um, you know, swim touring pretty much anywhere that's really, really, nice to look at and with, uh, with good company. So, uh, yeah, that's the sort of thing I have in mind.
1: Fucking heck. Uh, so is there going to be a down Downriver mm. Nomad 2 then?
0: <laughs> Off the um, f- 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 <laughs> funny you should ask. Uh, oh. Several weeks ago, I, I started writing my second book. Um, <clears throat> um, it, it won't be all about, you know, Downriver Nomad was my life up until I swam the Clutha. Um, and that was, you know, a therapeutic exercise for me and something I just always wanted to do is write about my adventures. And just on that note, I got, I, I, when I started writing, I didn't think I was going to include the childlessness part of it. I thought I was just going to write about triathlon and marathon swimming for <coughs> me. Uh, but um, as I started writing and realized, you know, I, I thought, Oh yeah, I'm over that childlessness thing. I don't need to write about that. And I realized when I started writing, I was like, you know what? I'm not over that. And so writing it down and talking it through with people and, you know, having this podcast, for example, and, you know, you know, being out on expeditions, you know, we're sleeping out in tents or, uh, in the huts out here in the back country, in New Zealand, or running through the mountains with people and talking it through with people who've read my book has been, I found very valuable. And some people have told me they've found that very valuable as well. Um, So what I've got in mind to write about is really delve into the subject of no control and, you know, life being, I guess, inherently chaotic in many ways and looking for ways to navigate that. So I want to explore that sort of concept of no control and what do you do in the face of life's chaos in the context of endurance sport and building up resilience and um, really delving into that concept is what I've got in mind. but that said as a amateur hobby writer I've realized that a lot of writers myself included when you sit down to write something what you have in mind to write isn't necessarily what ends up getting written Mm. um because like what I say my original plan did not include um childlessness to write about but I found I won't say I had to but I found out I was very moved to and I'm very glad I did um yeah um So that's what i've got in mind for my second book and i've got i've got a few other books in mind Uh, um, i've got a fiction book about endurance sport in mind uh you know basically someone dealing with trauma and trying to deal with it through endurance sport i've got got a fictional story in mind about that and you know so um like writing even if you don't have a full-time job takes a long time so there's no time frame (laughs) going to be put on that sort of thing Uh, but, um, i found that, you know, it's become a hobby that I've, um, you know, really wanted, you know, I don't want to just leave it at what I've, what I've done. I'm happy with what I've done and I'm doing my best to promote it, um, with the limited time that I have, you know, working full-time, training full-time, having a relationship and other things, but, um.
3: It's never the end, uh, I think, What no. I can always tell all my author clients that it's, it's, you type the end, it's not the end. There's a whole another great big mm. mountain to climb in order to make sure that people pick up the book and read it. So, mm-hmm. I credit to you. I I know how hard that is. I've never written. Well, I have written one book or part of a book, but I kind of pick it up from the end and take it onwards. And it's it's difficult. It's it's, everything is problematic at various points. So well done on that. Yeah, like my my
0: uh, my wife is a writer as well, and uh, you know she published her first book. um, I think it was 2019 called Joyful Eating. She's a nutritionist and. Uh, she wants to be more of a food writer than, uh, than a nutritionist. and She doesn't really want to tell people what to eat. So watching her um, write that first book was really inspiring. And that's what kind of uh, made me get off my bum or actually a better way of putting it is getting on my bum to write a, write a book. And, you know, she's got her first novel coming out um, the end of July. And that's the a fictional version of this. It's going to be like a self helpy novel uh kind of like some apollo kaleo's books for example um you know where there's like a life lesson and anyway this book she wrote about joyful eating um she's got a it's a novel of a woman going through that journal of a ma- journey of making peace with her body and uh, making peace with food and um you know so she's really chewing her cud with that sort of thing so to speak So, I'm really going to be chewing my cud with endurance sport and this concept of no control and life being inherently chaotic. But how do you orient yourself in such a way that you can navigate that? And there's no, I don't think there's any one way to do that. But the way I've learned to do that is with my triathlon stuff and marathon swimming. Oh, I love it. Right. Listeners,
1: you really have to read this book. It's so good, honestly. I know you mm-hmm. weren't going to talk about the childlessness, but for me, uh, I loved all the sport. I loved, well, I like getting into other people's heads. That's probably why I'm a counsellor. But the childlessness, it, yeah. I, I, I went through it with you, if you <clears> like. I can feel <throat> my own stuff <throat> percolating. So, yeah, yeah. So do have a read because it's mm. not many people that talk about it.
3: It's on oh, yeah. Amazon, listeners, oh. and it's called Downriver Nomad, A Triathlete's Adventures and Adversities into the Rapids by Rob Hutchins. We will put the links in the show notes to make sure that you go and buy it. Kindle mm. and paperback. Yes. <laughs> so, uh, it doesn't matter whether yeah. you, how you want to listen to it, whether you want to do it on your iPad or whether you want to read a print copy, then that's cool. Go and buy it. It's definitely worth it because it's just yeah. so much more. As, as, oh, we could talk for hours because it's yeah. just so many <laughs> You know, childlessness and the adoption is just a very, you know, a, a small part of a very, very big story. And I can't wait to find out more about what you're going to be writing. Keep in touch. And also with Tansy as well. i um, mm. do send over the links as well. I'd love to read what she's been writing as well with Avid book. Yeah. Well, yeah.
0: Absolutely. And um, um, inc- incidentally, I don't want to make this sound like shameless self-promotion or wife promotion, I should say, but this this novel that she's got, coming out it's called weight of a woman and okay. like i say it's about a, it's about a woman making peace with her body but the sequel to the book what what she the way she was able to one of the ways she was able to come to terms with childlessness herself um, i mean i obviously wrote the factual story of our childlessness journey and obviously i'm telling it from a man's perspective what what she did is the sequel to this book weight of a woman the next one we're hoping to get it out in the world 5 or 6 months later I can't promise a release date yet. Cause we don't know yet. The, the book has been written. Um, it's called tears of a woman. And what she did was the same two characters that are in this book, weight of a woman. She tells the childlessness journey and the adoption journey. It's a fictional story. It's more or less our story, but she did it through a fictional, uh, thing. And that's how she processes. She's, she's more, she's a really, really creative soul. So, um, um she she didn't tell it you know from mine and her point of view uh she told it through a fictional story but it's more or less yeah you know with a few minor differences what what happened with us um and it's the same woman going through a childless journey after you know first making peace with her body and learning how to eat joyfully so yeah. So uh yeah, I mean we're looking forward to, to her being able to release that as well. But the first this first book she's this first novel is out uh in July, July
1: twenty
2: eighth. Perfect timing. <laughs> yeah. Mm. Hey, Rob, I can yeah, tell yeah. you that I've, I've just seen these two scribbled down the names of those <laughs> books your wife has written. So you can tell her there's two guaranteed sales right there. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. We just oh. need, to, we need
3: to definitely read them, and most importantly, review. Because I know from 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 my own work that yeah, the reviews as well as the purchases. So if you do are listening to this and you read Rob's book or you read Tansy's book when it comes out, do pay time to send a review in to wherever you bought it from. Because they are worth their weight in gold. They really are. Well, I do
0: appreciate reviews. I mean I do have a Goodreads page for my book, Downriver Nomad, and a number you of do people have
3: that too. Yeah. yeah
0: <laughs> And uh yeah, we appreciate the reviews. And if you do read it, I mean I um, you know, um, invite people to contact me directly through Facebook or Instagram. And my Instagram thing is downriver underscore nomad, you know, title of my book. And um, you know, I I welcome people who just want to tell me their thoughts on the book, whether you liked it or maybe you didn't like it. Um, I welcome the feedback and it's it, it, it's it's good inspiration as a hobby writer. Like I said, it's never going to be the thing I make my living off of. It's just something I want to do for, for the joy of it. <laughs> so, yeah. And I would compare writing a book to being like a triathlon because I compare the editing phase to that time when you're three quarters of the way through the race where you sometimes catch yourself thinking no one's making me do this why am I doing this to myself <laughs> but uh, then you push through that and you get it out there and you cross the
3: finish line and you're like woohoo <laughs> I'll take your word for that I can only do it from the side, but yeah I'll go with, uh, I'm going to use it, that it, for my next client uh, look you're in a marathon it, it's fine. Rob says dead did it
0: as someone who's as someone who's done both of those things I can tell you the, the feeling is very much the same Mm. Okay because uh, uh, like, like I say, I don't make my living from triathlon or writing and no one is making me do it and it's it's hard work, especially when you get three quarters of the way through it and you start questioning yourself why.
3: Mm.
0: And then when you can push through that self-doubt and get to the end, that's very satisfying
3: every episode of the podcast <laughs> i think
2: <Yeah>.
3: <laughs> <laughs> oh my god why yeah, <laughs> yeah. thank you yeah. so much for yeah taking thank time you. To join us. Mm-hmm.
1: thanks for listening we really hope you found rob as incredible as we did we'd love to hear from you if you are equally inspired by rob and have any adventures of your own planned that you'd like to talk to us about If you want to find out more about Rob and his adventures, you can find him at www.adventuresoutsidethelanes.com. If you'd like to find out more about the podcast or you have a great idea for a topic we've not covered yet, or you just want to know something more about, we'd love to hear from you. We want this podcast to have as many voices from across our community as possible. So if something's missing or you just want a deeper dive on it, just let us know. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter and LinkedIn. We also have a YouTube channel now and you can find us on our own website at www.thefullstoppod.com You can sign up to our listeners list there at the website which keeps you up to date on what we're up to and if you'd like to you can also donate to keep our work going too. As always, it's important for us to remind you, you're not alone. Today, Rob. Thank you so Um, much.
3: It's been amazing. It's wonderful. Really lovely to speak to you and talk to you for absolutely hours. You Um, have. We have. I've got to go on holiday now.
1: (laughs) Nice. Thank you, Rob. Absolutely
3: fascinating.